Mark chapter 1. Now, after Jesus, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. So it is my opinion that this passage, although it's extremely brief, is very dense in its theological meaning and especially as relates Mark's use of certain phrases as they relate to not only the rest of Mark's gospel and not only the gospels themselves as a whole, taken as the four, and not just the New Testament, but indeed the entire scriptures, Mark is doing things that help us to see uh, the kingdom of God in a central aspect that it is preeminent. And we're going to look exactly at what I mean by the kingdom of God being preeminent. How is the kingdom of God being described by Jesus Christ in what he calls his, his disciples to do? In following him. So the title of this message is that Jesus calls his disciples to fish for men. This is the chief reason he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We're going to look at this in five points. First, what is the gospel that Jesus begins to preach when he comes up out of the wilderness? What is that gospel about in declaring the kingdom of God as a, as a primary and central tenant? of his message. What Mark is doing here, just before we, just as we get started, he is not saying that Jesus quoted these words. In fact, in the Greek, there are no quotes. Greek doesn't use quotes. And while that might be pulling the Greek trump card, it's an important detail. Mark is not saying Jesus uttered these words verbatim. This is a summary statement, in my opinion. This is a summary statement of the full course and the full content of what Jesus was preaching as he was preaching at the beginning of his, of his ministry. So we're going to look at the kingdom of God, the subject of the kingdom of God as it's seen in the scriptures, what it is and what it isn't, and then how it speaks about the worthiness of Jesus Christ as the king of that kingdom. We're going to look at Jesus' command to repent and believe and what those are as two sides of the same gospel coin, that there is only one right response to Jesus Christ's call, that a non-response or a delaying response is your response, and it is a disobedience to the command to believe in the gospel. We're going to look primarily, the whole, the whole center of this message is on Christ's calling of the disciples, and what he does in calling them reveals something about who he is. Uh, uh, just as we begin, I want to emphasize that this is what Jesus does. The first way that Jesus reveals himself 
Indeed, it's my opinion that although the miracle at Cana was the first miracle revelation of Jesus, just as we saw the season of Epiphany begins with the Father's revelation of Jesus as his Son and the Messiah, the prophet whom, should, whom Israel should listen to, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Not only does that happen at his baptism, but it also happens very clearly in the calling of the disciples. And it's actually, I believe it's very clear on the surface of the text, but we need to let it marinate, we need to dig around it, we need to probe what is it that the disciples are being asked to do in following Jesus Christ. I want to look at their obedient response in the light of the command. First, the command to follow him comes from Christ. He utters God's word and they respond in a faith-filled obedience. And then I want to apply this passage to us by way of analogy. You and I are not fishers, but you and I are supposed to be disciples. And the same requirement that God gave to these original disciples, he gives to every disciple. Now, to be sure, these 12 were particular in their calling, their anointing, their, their uh, glory to, to most of them being, becoming, or a majority of them becoming writers of the New Testament. We are not the apostles, However, we are called to be disciples just as they were. And it's interesting to note that they are called disciples at the first and only apostles as they begin to utter in their teaching and prophetic ministry after the fact. So I want to make an analogy between this passage and hindrances that we have which prevent us from being disciples of Christ, from truly obeying him. And we're going to look at that in three points. And we're going to be looking at very challenging commands of Jesus. And one of the things that I love in reading the New Testament is just to read over statements from the Lord time and time again. And the Holy Spirit is so faithful to bring out a fresh understanding and a fresh application. Uh, because when Jesus is making these sort of commands on his disciples, he's not just speaking in metaphor. Too often we truncate the power of God's word by saying, well, Jesus is using hyperbole or an analogy or metaphor. And sometimes that's true. But, but naming the part of speech or the part of rhetoric which Jesus is employing is not a defense against the core of the essence of what he's saying. If anyone would come up after me, he must take up his cross. Oh, well, Jesus is using a metaphor. We don't have crosses. Oh, we have crosses. Understanding and analyzing the text can sometimes distract us from the center of what the text is saying. And so I want to look at this passage as being an analogy to what we all have to do. If anyone would become a Christian, he must take up his cross. So often we, we put discipleship out into a secondary category. And we see actually in the Gospels, it's the core. None are Christians who are not disciples. That's what my main uh, idea here is in applying this to us as Christians. So at the beginning, I want to look here at the kingdom of God, Jesus' uh, Jesus's first public preaching that he does. As I believe, Mark is issuing a summary statement or giving an, uh, a, a quick synopsis of what the rest of Christ's ministry was. Just to be helpful to you, I do not think... In saying that, I do not think that Jesus said one sentence and that was the end of his gospel preaching. 
Do, do you understand how I get from, there's a, it looks like a quote in your English Bible to it's probably the case that this is actually a summary? Uh, even now, I've already spoken in this morning uh, to you in this address, I've already spoken dozens and dozens of sentences. And I am sure that Jesus Christ did not just come up out of the wilderness, say one sentence or two, and then stop. I, I, wa- I wanted to say that because I'm not playing fast and loose here with the scriptures. Jesus used words. He was fully incarnate. He perfectly taught. He taught with words, words without error, and he taught in such a way that his hearers could hear. He did not require his hearers to know all of what he was saying already, so it's very likely that Jesus is not saying one sentence and then repent and believe and and ending there. That is not where he's ending. So I believe Jesus is describing a few things. First of all, I want to look at this announcement of the time is fulfilled. And to lay the background for you, Jesus has been baptized by John in the Jordan. He went up from the waters into the wilderness, being led by the Holy Spirit. He fasted for 40 days and was tempted by the enemy, Satan, and he overcame those temptations by the word of God. It's very important to understand Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, is tempted by the adversary, his arch enemy, his nemesis, and he does not rely upon his own words. He does not rely upon human wisdom. He simply stands on the promises put forth in God's word. The first way that he dismantles the enemy's attack is actually quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. That was how he dismantled the temptation to, out of his own power, short-circuit the Spirit's leading, end his fast on his own time schedule or his own determination, and then, of his own power, cause bread to come forth in the wilderness. And Jesus quotes to Satan a verse that God used in Deuteronomy describing why God gave them bread in the wilderness. Jesus is teaching something about how do we stay spiritually nourished in places of of death, in, in dry seasons, in dry places, dry times. We feed on the word of God. And so Jesus himself uses the word of God in the defeat of Satan, and he comes out in the power of the Spirit ready to preach. Jesus overcomes temptation by standing on the sure and steadfast promises. And if Jesus uses the word of God, who are we, limited, often weak, often filled with still corruption, uh, how much more do we need to use the word of God in our strategy against the enemy? Nevertheless, Jesus is not just our example of defeating the enemy in the wilderness, he's also a perfect example of representing the heart of the Father as he comes to reach his people. As soon as John is in prison, Jesus comes up, Mark records, as John was arrested or after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Jesus, I believe, is recognizing some of the times and seasons that God has just done, that by the Holy Spirit, he recognizes John's ministry is now over, And now I'm going to step to the forefront and begin to teach and preach and call a people. 
Jesus comes in the power of God to preach and represents the Father to his people. And Mark summarizes this, as I mentioned before, he summarizes this as an announcement of the kingdom of God having arrived. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The good news, the gospel of God is this, that the kingdom of man will not exist forever, the city of man, the reign of man against God's word, that will not exist forever, but rather the kingdom is coming and I've brought it with me. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ begins testifying to the current reign of God from creation until that moment, declaring the time is fulfilled. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he isn't talking about a date on the calendar, which he knew that he would start preaching on that day or that time. When Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, he says that God is the one who changes times and seasons. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, recognizes and interprets the situation on the ground, and full of wisdom, he declares the time is fulfilled. It's now time. God has now shifted things. He's made things ready. He's put empires down. He's raised empires up. He's created the Roman system of roads through which the gospel will start to occupy and and be transported on. He's created a governmental peace the Pax Romana, which has ensured that people could move from country to country with a a modicum of law and justice, Uh, that, that there weren't simply nations going on and causing wars. Wars, for the most part, were at the fringes of the Roman Empire at this time for the express reason that God's gospel would be able to usher forth and run swiftly. And so Jesus interprets these events as saying the time is fulfilled. And I'm of the opinion that this is one of the early claims of divinity, that Jesus not only has the ability to recognize that the times have changed, God raises up kings, tears down kings, he changes the times and seasons, Jesus utters a new era into existence in the first words of his gospel preaching. He says, the time is now, the time is fulfilled, everything is ready for my appearing, and he declares that to the people of God. They had been in a season of exile and a season of return to the land. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, John Gray talked about the the fact that they had returned from the land, but the Lord had never really returned. That they had made this temple, but the one who made it wasn't making, he wasn't even a good king. This this temple that Herod is is setting up at Jesus' beginning is not even finished. And so Jesus now comes and declares, the time is at hand, the season for my gospel ministry has arrived, and I'm declaring it's ready. It's kind of like um, if you've ever been preparing bread, you cannot make the bread before it's risen. There, there's a certain amount of time that things have to be ready. If you, if you make the loaf and then immediately throw it into the oven, some of the yeast will have done a little bit of work, but what you'll get is kind of this brick of dough that's undercooked and burnt on the outside. I know quite well what happens. (laughs) Jesus is saying everything's ready. Everything has been fulfilled. Everything has come to maturity. Now God is at, at the beginning of my ministry. Now God is ready to unveil the kingdom of God. And how does he do this? As we'll see in a few minutes, he does this by beginning to prepare a people and gather them. 
Though God has spoken to his people in many ways and at many times, through the patriarchs, the prophets, Moses writing the Pentateuch, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, although God has spoken to his people both through prophets who lived among them and prophets who wrote about their prophecy, though God has done that before, the book of Hebrews tells us God speaks to his people expressly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ himself is the manifestation of the word of God. He is the word of God and he rightly says that word. He expresses the Father's heart through his life and ministry. And so he's saying the time is at hand the, kingdom, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, and he is the one who brings the kingdom. I want to look closely at what the kingdom of God is not. First, the kingdom of God is not a political reign. Jesus does not run into Jerusalem, topple Herod, and then say, go tell the Romans I'm coming there next. He comes in and actually he just starts preaching in Galilee, which was politically insignificant in the nation of Israel at the time. He comes in and he declares the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's at the door. It's with me. I'm opening up the door to its ushering in. You can think of it as, as like a, a person who comes over for dinner and they're just a few minutes too early to be comfortable. It breaks in upon you and you now have to confront the reality that's, that's facing you at the door. That's what Jesus does. He says, I'm here and I've brought my kingdom with me. The, the kingdom of God is not political, but it has political implications. We saw this during the time of Christmas, especially if you were reading your Bible during that time and you came across the slaughter of the innocents. Why does Herod kill all the baby children? Because he thinks there's a king who's been born to take his reign. He wants to, he wants to stay in control. Slaughtering of children is all about control. So nevertheless, Jesus is saying the time is at hand, the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is not the afterlife, nor is it even an internal, hidden, personal, private reality. Jesus does not begin to preach about the kingdom of God in order to change just the soul life. It begins there, but like that mustard seed, which is the smallest of seed, it then begins to become the biggest plant in the garden. The kingdom of God does resolve in personal conversion. It does, it does usher in a new life in a soul, but it then begins to manifest itself and bring forth fruit. The kingdom of God, rather, is the reign of God over and through his people on the earth. This is what God did in the garden. He installed Adam to tend and to keep the garden on his behalf. And God would come, just like a king might visit a territory, God would come and meet with Adam day to day. And then at one point, Adam rebels against his reign, establishes his own system in which he rejects God's word and, and begins to trust in his own word or his own opinion of that fruit looks good to eat, even though God's told me not to. God's word no longer matters. And so God has established his reign as being mediated through his representatives on the earth, that as Adam bore the image of God, he was supposed to tend and keep the garden and extend its bounds. And I, I'm convinced that he would have been given more and more authority to beautify the lands around the garden and sort of expand it. Nevertheless, that didn't happen. 
The coming near of the kingdom is the announcement that this world system, as I just mentioned, that was established by Adam, rejecting God's reign, rejecting his authority to rule on the earth, rejecting his word and trusting in man's word, the coming of the kingdom, the the kingdom coming near is the announcement that that other system, which indeed is still alive and present today, is ending. So the kingdom of God does not come and the rest of the kingdoms disappear immediately. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, and I believe that what God is doing is beginning to reveal his reign through redeemed people. And so this is what I understand the kingdom of God to be. We see in Revelation 11 that there's an announcement or a song, and that song says that the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. And so this idea that Psalm 2 is beginning to happen, ask of me and I will give you the nations. And the implication would be, did Jesus forget to ask? He didn't forget to ask. He asks and God gives him the kingdoms of the earth, the nations, the coastlands, the islands. They all begin to come and they begin to be repentant and transformed through the gospel. And they then join in or enter into this kingdom that Jesus begins. All political and religious systems and powers which are aligned with Satan are beginning to crumble. Notice I'm saying beginning. They aren't gone. If you look around, they aren't gone. But when Jesus sends out his disciples, there's this amazing moment in in Luke chapter 11 where they come back, he gives them authority to cast out demons. They come back and say, Lord, the demons submit to us or, you know, submit to your name. We're able to cast them out. He then he then responds to them, and it's, it's one of these moments where you think Jesus is just out there in left field. He doesn't even really plainly address what they just said to, them, to him. He then says, I beheld Satan falling like lightning from heaven. What does Jesus mean by that? He means that in the defeat of these demonic powers in the lives of the people that happened through his disciples' faithful obedience to go cast demons out, something in the spirit happened in which Jesus says, I beheld Satan falling like lightning. It's this amazing paradoxical statement that that requires a lot of meditation, but what I think it implies is that in some way the kingdom of God was beginning to be established over Israel through their ministry. So, Christ does not say that the kingdom of God is coming soon, but that he has brought, his, brought it with him. And I just want you to understand that things which are at hand are in your hand or are close to them, to, close to your hand. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And what we do when we misinterpret the scriptures, we put all of the kingdom after the second coming. We take the kingdom and all that it could possibly mean. We either put it in the future beyond our reach or we put it into the spiritual only, that the kingdom of God is actually just where we go after we die. Jesus says the kingdom of God is really close. It's, it's within reach. It's, you can touch it. As Christ is Lord over the Sabbath, so also he has been entrusted by his Father to usher in God's reign and to bring it to pass, to begin to plant that seed, cause it to germinate, cause it to begin to grow. Jesus has been given the task, following John's end, uh, the end of John's preaching, Jesus has been given the task to prepare the people of God for the arrival of his kingdom. And this is exactly what he does in the next phrase, 
saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. God speaks to his people and desires to draw near to them, but before he can do that, they must be prepared. They must be made ready. Verse 15, Jesus was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For the people to be ready for the inbreaking of God's kingdom, remember that imagery that I gave you earlier, someone's come to your house for dinner and they're too early. You now are dealing with their presence and you have to respond. And Jesus therefore says, the kingdom is here, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. For the people to be ready for God's coming near, in the scriptures we see this over and over again, he tells his, uh, his ruler, his leader, his patriarch, he tells them to tell the people, put away your foreign gods, destroy your idols, prepare yourselves. When Moses goes up to Sinai, he says, let no one go near a woman. At that time, what was happening was so important that God called them to abstain from even legitimate pleasures. He, he wants them to prepare themselves for this very significant reality, which is coming in God is coming near to you. Therefore, Christ tells them to repent and believe in the gospel. And it's my opinion that though it's expressed as two things, repent and believe, that these are really one thing in essence. That they have two manifestations of fruit. That repentance and faith go hand in hand. They are holding hands. They can't rightly be separated from one another. To repent, I believe, is to change your mind about sin, life, the world, reality, and to begin to listen to God's word as it is truth. Repentance is the changing of trusting your opinion about your life, the world, the things of righteousness, what it takes to please God, to change your opinion from being settled on your word to you submit to God's word. And rightly understood, that has to be the case because of what faith is. Faith is not abstract belief or religious feelings. Faith is not a sense of rightness that you have about the things of God. It's good to be a Christian. It's good to want to please God. No, faith is a gift from God by which we respond in obedience to the promises of God. Faith can only be real faith if it is a response to the word of God being preached. So faith is not abstract feeling. Faith is not just a sense of religious affections or religious devotions. You hear today people talk about, well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to focus on being a more spiritual person. Or I, I, want to, I want to go on a journey of spirituality to discover. That's not authentic faith. Yes, God does from time to time draw people and call people to seek after him. But real faith biblically is a gift from God and it is only a response to God's grace. God's word has to come first, and then someone can believe and trust. And that is what repentance and faith is. Just as a coin has two sides, the only right response to the word of God is repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. If you think of a coin, it has two sides. It has a head and a tails. For example, the, the U.S. quarter has George Washington on one side. What does it have on the other side? The eagle? 
I don't touch quarters that often, but I remember. It's got a head and it's got an eagle. Why? Why? Because it's the most common coin in circulation. Uh, it's the most common physical coin, not dollar. It has George Washington's head because he's our first president and it has the eagle because that's our insignia as a country. We, we are recognized by eagles. And if, if you've never seen a YouTube video of eagles attacking, I would encourage you to take a look at it. That's totally beside the point. But it, I saw this video, and it was amazing how this eagle was able to just kill an, like a, a mountain elk like 300 times its weight. It was amazing. Nevertheless, the point is that coins have two sides. They have two sides, but it is a quarter. It's not half a quarter. It's not the heads or the tails. It is a quarter. It has two sides. I believe that that's what gospel gospel response is. Repentance and faith are not things that you can have without the other. You can't repent and not believe. Likewise, you can't express faith without turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, what is the whole point of our teaching? It is this, is obedience or love from faith. That repentance and faith go together. That you can't love things above God and also have faith because faith is expressed in obedience. They go hand in hand. Paul tells the Ephesian church that that faith by which they were saved, that that faith was grace. It was a gift from God. Though faith is a gift from God, if it is authentic, it must bear the fruit of obedience. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and he says that he's heard of their response to the gospel and he summarizes it in this, that you have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. I want you to think of a, a big giant dial or a gauge. If you've ever been in a car, you've seen a gas gauge, right? You can go from full to empty, but you cannot be full and empty at one point, Right? If you have a very broken gauge, you might get that for a few seconds and then you're aware that it's, it's wrong. It's a wrong gauge if it's telling you those two things. I think that's what Paul is saying, that the Thessalonians have heard the gospel and now they've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. One movement of turning and one express outcome that they have begun to obey in light of the word that they've heard, which is that Jesus Christ is Lord that sin is destructive, that he's come to save you from your sins. He can wash you and cleanse you, make you a new creation, fill you with his spirit, take up a new life in you, and cause you to obey God from the heart. So, in order that men might be drawn into this kingdom, remember the kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of God through his people expressed in their obedience to his word, Jesus then calls and appoints certain men to follow him. This is the reason he calls the disciples that they would be able to participate in his gospel ministry in repeating this announcement. Jesus is in Galilee, but all the nations of the earth have to hear. So how is that going to happen? Is Jesus going to be able to visit every town? No, he's not. He's going to be able to visit those towns which contain the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and even indeed some of the, the nations around them, Jesus is not able to go everywhere and preach the gospel. So he appoints these men, these disciples, to come and be a part of him for the express purpose of multiplying that kingdom. Remember that imagery of yeast. This is what he's doing. He's giving them 
the, the message of the kingdom, they take that. They first are internalized or, or the, that message transforms them and then they go on and tell others. This is what I believe he does in calling the apostles. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is drawing on imagery that the prophets use to describe the sort of gospel ministry that will attend the Messiah, that he'll make the way of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, glorious, Galilee of the Gentiles. The reason why the prophet calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles is because that's the end goal. These guys who are fishing in this sea are going to now start to be fishing in the sea of the Gentile world. And so Jesus is intentionally choosing these men He's doing this at the Sea of Galilee, having known exactly who to choose, and he appoints them to follow him. He commands them to follow him, and he does it for this specific purpose. Follow me, and if you follow me, you'll, you'll start to fish for men, just like I am today. These disciples were not called because of their perfection, but as we might glean from the Gospels, they were actually called despite their perfection. There are these times in the Gospels, which I love, where, for example, in the Transfiguration, Peter begins to open his mouth, and then the, the writer of the Gospel gives you a hint. He said this because he did not know what to say. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, for example, Doubting Thomas, you know, we, we call him Doubting Thomas. I think that's not the right way to speak of an apostle, but he, he says, unless I put my hand in his unless I can touch the hands in his holes and in his side. And what does Jesus do when he comes? He comes and tells Thomas, put your hand here, touch here. He wants to destroy all the doubt that Thomas has. And I think the reason the Gospels contain these stories is that we wouldn't mythologize or they're, they're not hagiographies. They're not, they're not stories of saints. They're not stories in which everything Peter does is, is whitewashed. He just gets a pass because he's a disciple. I think they're included in the gospel so that we would learn from their negative example. This is the sort of person that God is willing to call. I think that Paul says that in his own ministry. This is why I was chosen, that the gospel and the, 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 the grace of God would be made very clear and evident. He's able to save murderers of his church. That's how gracious our God is. Graciously, Christ appoints these 12 for this specific purpose, as Mark tells us in just two chapters, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. First, it all starts with that they might be with him. This is what our Lord desires the most for all of his disciples. First is that they would be with him. And only having been with him, they are then given the authority to preach and to cast out devils. The transformative grace of Christ is clearly seen in John's gospel. This notion of being with him is vitally important that we understand in this, that John, as he's writing his gospel, he doesn't use the name John when he refers to himself. He doesn't even say the author of this gospel. He begins to call himself by this name or this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I think it's mightily significant because John is saying the reality of Christ's love is so important to me. It's transformed my heart so much that my name, who I was named as a father, by my father, that is very insignificant. 
and now it is just Christ's love and Christ's love alone which defines my life. I think that's what John is saying in that phrase. Every time he uses it, he's been transformed. It's not mere humility to say that he just wanted to, to diminish himself in the story. No, I think he actually was boasting in something. He was boasting in the love of Christ. As Jesus goes to the cross, he washed the disciples' feet, and he then says to them, no longer do I call you slaves, but friends. He, he calls them friends, and, and indeed, after the resurrection, he then begins to call them brothers. Having been first caught in Christ's net, these disciples are transformed by the grace of Christ, and then they are sent out to preach. Now, it's true that Jesus sent the disciples out when they were still immature, but after the Gospels are coming to a close, especially in John chapter 21, Jesus says something to Peter that transforms Peter's life. When Jesus says, follow me, he is not telling them just to physically follow him, but to rather imitate him in all of his teaching, ministry, prayer life, exercise of God's grace. That is what it means to follow Jesus Christ. It doesn't simply mean to walk behind him as he journeys. It means to begin to take up his way of life. So how do the disciples respond. Mark records this response, and he, he uses very little detail, but he records this response, and he highlights one thing specifically, that their response was carried out in obedience immediately. In verse, in verse 17, Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now again, he may have used more words, I don't know, it would definitely be reading into the text at this point to say that he did use more words. But it's clear that they were able to respond in obedience immediately. Mark highlights that word. While Mark does not focus on some details that other gospel writers use, he does highlight one thing. In fact, in the book of John, John records a conversation that is taking place between Simon and Andrew. We've found the Christ. So we know there was a little bit more than what Mark is recording. Why does Mark not record that? He wants to bring this idea to the forefront, that they immediately obeyed. And by using this phrase immediately, Mark is suggesting something extremely profound. In Mark's gospel, he always uses the word immediately to highlight a few things. Usually it is the power of God working in a person. Most often it is a miracle taking place, but here, in this usage, it is at least God is moving the story along in a dramatic fashion. Just like that person who arrives at your door early for dinner and you have to deal with their presence, they respond to Jesus' command and they cannot delay. He comes to them and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men and something alive inside them comes and rises up and they, they reject their calling that they had formerly had because they've gotten a new calling. Why is this detail important? Because of this reason, it tells us of the need for God's power to be operative in our lives. Whenever Mark uses the word immediately, most often he is suggesting God just did something dramatic in the gospel. Jesus immediately, in, in this very same chapter, when Jesus is led up to the wilderness, it says immediately the Spirit moved him up to the wilderness. Immediately, 
he saw the heavens being torn open. It's the dramatic action of God breaking in on a situation. And he then says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. I believe this is suggesting to us, or even screaming, if you will, it's Mark is saying to us, there needs to be some sort of powerful spirit-led response to the command to follow Christ. And by this, I make this application. If we, like Simon and Andrew, are to obey God's word, it must be, it must be because of the power of God being at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is what I am convinced of in this passage and its application for us. Again, we see this same idea in James and John's response to Christ's call. Verse 19, going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. James and John here forsake their father's trade. Now, it's a little bit removed from our culture, but in those days, you were called to take up the calling of your father for the most part. This was the tradition that was established in their culture. And indeed, throughout the West, this has taken place. This is the reason why people are called, you know, for example, John Smith, because his last name, his surname, was a description of the vocation that he practiced. And men and women, until they're married, take on their father's name. For example, my name's Weiss. My dad's name is Weiss. Likewise, most of you have names that came from your parents. Not all of you, but most of you have names which are handed down to you. And part of the tradition of that, in the West at least, in Western culture, is because it was expected that you would take on your father's labor. For example, Jesus himself is a carpenter because Joseph, his earthly father, was a carpenter. And understanding this uh, idea... We, we see how dramatic their obedience was. In one moment, according to Mark, immediately they rejected cultural norms and their own experience in their career. At one simple word that Jesus uttered. What they do is they recognize the supreme authority of Christ who has the right to command anything, any sort of obedience. Like Nehemiah, who is building the wall of Jerusalem, they recognize the calling of Christ as a great work. Nehemiah is building the wall, and some people come from Sanballat, this guy who's trying to stop the work on the wall. And he, they, they try to entertain Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, come down and talk to us, because they were planning treachery to, to kill him. And he then says to them, being up on the wall and already too far away for them to just attack, he says, I cannot stop for this work is a great work, which I have been given to do. And so they recognize, just like Nehemiah did, this work that Christ is calling them to do, to fish for men, is much more important than any earthly mundane calling that they were currently engaged in. And it demands total obedience no matter what the cost. In forsaking their father's trade, I believe Mark is hinting and indeed, I think this is expressed later in the Gospels, that in forsaking their father's trade and business, that they were renouncing their father in this regard. Not that they were accusing their father of sin, but they were removing themselves from their father's business and blessing, and indeed their entire inheritance. And the reason why I believe that is so clearly expressed here is because Mark uses this word, 
They left their father and the hired servants. When God gives a promise to Abraham, he says, your heir, your offspring, will become great. And at one point, Abraham says, who is to inherit from me? Will it be Eleazar? He's the only one of my house. Eleazar was the chief servant that Abraham had hired. And God says, no, it won't be Eleazar. In the custom of the Jews, if a man did not have sons, his inheritance did not go to his daughters. It went to his chief male servant. Because a man who did not have any sons, that chief servant was like a son. We think of servants in the Old Testament as chattel slavery as experienced in our country. They're completely separate systems. Nevertheless, this was often the view of slavery in the scriptures, that if a slave loved his master and wanted to stay with his master's service, he had to get his ear pierced, and then he would be treated as a son, like a son. And so when, when I believe Mark says he, they left their father and the hired servants, it's not just an obscure detail. He didn't describe the boat. He didn't describe if anyone was on the shore. He's expressing something. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus gives a, a statement when someone is a rich person and comes and wants to become a follower of Jesus, and then he can't because he loves money, and Jesus says he has to give up his money. He then expresses to his disciples, it is very difficult for the rich to come and enter the kingdom of God. And then, then the disciples say, we have left everything to follow you. That's where I'm basing my interpretation here is that in some way, the disciples, especially leaving their father's business, they're renouncing their future. They're saying Christ demands a better future. He, he commands me to obey him and to follow him no matter what the cost how does the calling of this disciple reveal Christ to his people? Here's what I am getting at in this whole message about the, the series that we're doing, or this time rather as a church that we're doing in the time of Epiphany. How does this passage reveal Jesus Christ? It does it in this way. It shows us that Jesus Christ is glorious and worthy of perfect obedience and always issues gracious calls calls, commands, which contain grace by which the disciples are able to respond. Unlike the other accounts of Christ's miraculous ministry, which put forth his power, these somewhat simple, somewhat easy to miss accounts of Christ's teaching and command of his disciples, they put forth his worth and excellency and obedience. The disciples do not consider their careers as worthy of retaining in the light of Jesus' command. And simultaneously, therefore, we must see our utter inability to, be, to obey without the, the grace of God. The radical obedience which Christ requires is not exclusive to the disciples. And here's what I want to suggest as three uses. Indeed, Christ commanded not just the 12 to forsake anything, but said in Mark 8, later in this same gospel, if anyone would come up after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Exact same words he said to the disciples, follow me. If anyone, and I believe that includes you and I, I want to put forth three ideas. First, Christ requires us to forsake our sin, especially the sin of unbelief. That's at the beginning of the gospel. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We must repent of our sins and forsake them by seeing them as vile and deadly. 
the sins which we love do not just keep us in some uh, state in which we are doubting our assurance or somewhat wondering whether Christ can bring us to maturity. The sins which we love war against our souls. They prevent us from being able to see the glory of God. Our sins have been dealt with by Christ, and he has washed us. Nevertheless, Christ did not come to just give us forgiveness. He came to deliver us from the power of iniquity. And the power of iniquity is broken by the clear belief of the gospel. And that belief is in accord with the gospel which is preached and is contained in the scriptures. So if we're to progress in defeat of sin, we have to simultaneously, by God's grace, see the worth of Christ, which these disciples do, which is evidenced by their immediate obedience, and then from that, we are willing to forsake things which we used to love. Do you see the analogy here? The disciples, although they had legitimate careers before they were called, they forsook even a okay thing, a legitimate career. How much more ought we to forsake sin? The problem is, however, that we love our sin and yet we must hate it. Let all those who love the Lord hate evil. Are there sins, this is a question that I want you to ask yourself through this week, are there sins which you particularly love, which prevent you from following Christ and experiencing him, his power, his word? Are there things which Christ might come and say to you, oh, that I would just be able to take this from you, that that I might communicate myself more to you? Are there habits of sin? Not are there occasional rare sins, moment by moments, but are there things which you love? This is what we learned in the time of James when we were spending our time. We're first drawn away by our desires. The second thing is Christ requires that we would count the cost of following him. He gives a parable in which he says that you do not build a tower unless you first set down to count the cost of the materials. Lest having begun the tower, your neighbors come to mock you when you are unable to finish. He says that you must count the cost to follow him in this way. He commands us to regard him as preeminent, as the first in all of our affections, time, finances, energy, you name it. Anything that is in our life, Christ is Lord over. Though careers and family re- familial relationships, family relationships can be a gift from God, he alone deserves our highest obedience and uh, our highest allegiance and total obedience. The reason I say can be is because there are often things which prevent us from following after Christ, even though they are legitimate, but in God's particular will for us, he is revealing to us we must set those things aside. Uh, this is not a call to, for you all to quit your jobs. Hear me clearly. There are family ties which are not legitimate in the kingdom of God. And if you obey those family ties over and against Christ, you are unworthy to be his disciple. Brothers and sisters, if that sounds like a harsh word, that is Christ's word. Those things which hinder us from obeying Christ must immediately be disregarded. So, The second question I want you to ask yourself this week is, are you clinging to things which prevent you from fishing men? Again, as we saw that Jesus says to to anyone, if anyone would be willing, or if anyone desires to come up after me, he must take up his cross. And by extension, 
I would understand it to be the call to be a fisher of men. Now, you're not going to be an apostle. You're not going to write chapters of scripture, but you are called to fish for men, no matter who you are. Thirdly, Christ requires that we follow him, not knowing exactly where we are going. Now, I would admit that Mark doesn't have anything to say about what they're going, where they're going. And so I'm on a little tentative ground here, but I would, imp- I would imply, or I would take from Mark that Mark is implying that Christ says, follow me, and he doesn't tell them where he's going. He doesn't say, follow me to Jerusalem or follow me for a few years. He says, follow me. And he doesn't, at the end of his ministry, before he leaves, he doesn't just say, okay, you can go back to what you were doing. In fact, there's a moment where the disciples actually go back to fishing, isn't there? After Christ is killed and they haven't heard of his resurrection yet, Peter tells the the rest of the disciples, we see this in John's gospel at the end, he says, I'm going fishing. He reverts back to what he had left. Paul says, if I build up what I once destroyed, right? So, These disciples were called to follow Christ wherever he would lead them. And indeed, at the end of John's gospel, as Christ is about to depart, he reiterates this by telling Peter that when you were young, you got to go where you wanted. But after I leave, someone is going to come and he's going to tie you up and he's going to take you where you do not want to go. And then John interprets, he says, this was said so that he would indicate what type or manner of death he was given to glorify God. That is, Jesus is telling Peter very plainly, you're going to be bound by other men and you're going to be carried, just like I was a few days ago when when you left me and I was bound by the high priest and his soldiers and the, the Pharisees as they came out as a mob against me and they bound me and they took me where I didn't want to go. Peter, you're coming with me. You're going to follow me. And isn't it interesting that in Peter's pride, he said, Lord, if I have to follow you to death, I won't forsake you. And likewise with James and John, when they say, Lord, can we sit at your right hand and left hand? Jesus replies to them, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? And they said, we can. And it's the most amazing thing in the gospels to me. Without skipping a beat, he says, you will indeed drink that cup. But to give the right hand or the left hand, it's it seems like a bait and switch. They ask to be at the right and the left. He then says, well, are you willing to die? They say yes, and he says, yes, you will die, but I can't give you the right or the left. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that kind of funny? The, the point is, Jesus Christ satisfies the greatest longings in his disciples, which as we are sanctified, I'm convinced more and more that those greatest longings are transformed from what we wanted before we came to Christ. Even if we came to Christ for health, wealth, a career, a marriage, what have you, that he, he works on our heart by God's grace and he transforms us to desire to lay our lives down because we are being made after the image of our Redeemer. So, are you ready to follow Christ somewhere you do not want to go? That's an interesting question. If anyone would come up after me, he must take up his cross. He doesn't say after the 10th year. After the 15th year, after the 35th year of being a Christian, you have to take up your cross. He says that at the beginning, and this is a a very challenging word from Christ. And so I would say this, that as penetrating as these questions might be, Christ graciously opens up our hearts 
that he might deal with that thing which is causing death in us. I believe that when the Bible says the word of God is living, it's sharp, it's, it's like a two-edged sword, I like to think of it as it's Christ's scalpel by which he is able to open up and fillet my heart and expose those places which I still have yet to let him wash me in. That is what Christ does. So if you are hearing these questions and you're thinking, man, I can't do this. I don't want to die for the Lord. I don't want to take up my cross. I don't want to deny myself. The reason Christ puts these questions to his people is because he's a gracious Lord. And he does not open up these issues, as we see in his treatment of the disciples, he does not open up these issues to shame us, but rather to speak to us and say, I have yet to do something to you. When Jesus leaves his disciples in the Gospel of John, before he goes to the cross, he says, I have many things to to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. And it is God's word by which Christ then is able to speak these things to us. Despite the fears that we might have, Christ's grace always transforms us to take bold risks for the sake of his kingdom and mission on the earth. This is what you have been called to do as a disciple of Christ. You've been called to fish for men. And yet, immediately upon hearing the call to follow him, you might eagerly say yes. And then as you go down the road a little bit, you might say, I don't know if I signed up for this. God's grace will not leave you there. Now, there are some who are called but do not obey. That is true. Nevertheless, if you are truly in Christ, and if the Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, do not fear in life when you hear these statements of Christ and say, I don't know if I can do that. Trust in God's word that he will be able to transform you, just like he did for the disciples, who did indeed follow Christ all the way to their deaths. Now, you and I, we might not be called to martyrdom. That might not happen for some of us. Some of us, it may. That is not the point of this message. The point is we have to be ready for Christ to transform us so that we would be wanting that, that we would be willing for that. That is a high and lofty thing, and it's at this place that we once again recognize the Spirit of God has to transform us. If we're to see Christ as worthy of perfect obedience, the Spirit of God must do his work to make our hearts willing and ready. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, his excellency, his beauty, his power, his graciousness, his kindness, which is so gentle and tender, and yet his teachings, which are so clear and so cutting. Lord, if, if, if it were on any of our hearts, or if it were based on any of our power, no one could answer these calls to follow you. And Lord, yet we know that when you call us by your word, you also strengthen us by your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us clarity, that we would be able to see and perceive and treasure the great promises which are the fuel for our obedience, that we would have a faith-filled repentance that we would turn from the things which prevent us from following you and truly follow you, that we would become fishers of men. We thank you for your grace which transforms our lives. We commit our hearts to your care. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.